0: Good morning, welcome to Somerhill Church. So great to have you with us here this Sunday morning. Uh, please do have your Bibles open to chapter fifteen um, if only so that as we look through what are some pretty um, pretty potent and moving verses this morning, you can uh, perhaps let them sink further into your hearts and your minds as we reflect on them together, but also perhaps uh, having it open might remind you of those questions, those unsettled Uh, thoughts that you've had as we've worked through this um, second last chapter of 1 Corinthians, and as Lauren mentioned, uh, there is a chance today um, to ask any of those questions that have perhaps been lingering, uh, perhaps just niggling away at you about the place of the resurrection in the Christian life. Uh, Whether they come immediately from this passage or they're just questions that have been with you for a while, um, it would be wonderful if you were uh, wanting to submit those to do so, via that QR code at the bottom of the sheet. Well, Calvin Serbet is a 50-year-old New York artist who is best known, believe it or not, for his sandcastles. Uh, He pours phenomenal amounts of time and effort into some of these creations that he makes uh, on the beaches around New York City, creating these sculptures that daily are washed away as soon as the incoming tide comes in. Uh, Now, the artist says that he is totally fine, he's totally at ease totally at peace with the fact that these amazing works that he creates are washed away on a daily basis, but I reckon that each photo that he takes is a little act of resistance, Uh, a little attempt, perhaps, to grasp hold of something that is precious and is already under threat of fading away. Uh, The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes actually gives voice to this human frustration, the creeping sense of futility that can grip us when we're confronted by just how short-lived sometimes even our greatest achievements can seem to be. Uh, Have a look at these few little sections from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, In chapter 2, the writer writes, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took took delight in all of my labour. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And just a chapter earlier, at the opening of the book, uh, he writes in chapter 1, verse 11, no one remembers former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow after them. Even those things we do manage to kind of just cling to as precious memories will eventually begin to fade with the passing of time, or perhaps will be lost in the tangled confusion of dementia as we reach older age. How might the hope of the bodily resurrection impact the always fleeting, often frustrated experiences that go into making up this human life, this human experience that we all share in. That's what we're going to spend a little bit of time reflecting on today as we come to the end of Paul's thoughts on the resurrection in chapter 15. Now, in this final section of 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul turns to address the frustrations and futilities that inescapably seem to be a part and parcel of human experience. And like the writer of Ecclesiastes, Paul is pretty clear-eyed about the human capacity and limitations. Uh, have a look with me at Paul's uh, opening verse, uh, opening comments there in verse 50, where um, Chris had begun reading for us, verse 50 of chapter 15. As he works into his conclusion, Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, this phrase, flesh and blood, is Paul's shorthand way of describing the human ability, the human capacity to live and act in the world. Flesh is that part of us which we are physically using when we act upon and engage with the world around about us. Blood is that which channels and sustains life through us. That's how the Old Testament Scriptures think about what it means to be flesh and blood, a creature. But both the strength of human flesh and the life of our blood, of human blood, has its limits. In order to master our environments, humans have often proven remarkably uh, ingenious. We've got an amazing amount of adaptability and ingenuity in finding ways to compensate for the limits of our flesh and our blood. Uh, This picture up on the screen is an Eskimo um, parka uh, that was sewn together out of the intestines, believe it or not, of seals, I don 't know how on earth they ever managed to figure out how this would work, and they 'd inflate where they could, um, they 'd inflate the little strips of intestine with air in order to insulate themselves. and it was this ingenuity that allowed them to move and colonize to populate North America. Human flesh and blood has displayed a remarkable capacity to take possession of just about every corner of this creation that God has placed us in. And yet, flesh and blood, human power, human creativity, human cleverness, human ingenuity, adaptability, endurance, will prove impotent, Paul says, when it comes to colonising or populating the future that God has in store for our world. The kingdom of God, in this verse here, is Paul's way of describing an entire cosmos, the heavens and the earth, perfectly ordered according to God's will and God's design. And this future that God has in store for us and for his world will not be one that we ourselves can bring about or inherit by our own strength or cleverness or ingenuity. Flesh and blood can't establish this future or make it a reality or take possession of it. So if the future that God has in store, this kingdom of God, this new heaven and new earth is out of reach for human flesh and blood, then how on earth do we take possession of it? How on earth do we find a part in it? well, that's what Paul goes on to say in the the next few verses. I'll, I'll read verse 50 again and continue on to verse 53. Follow along with me again from verse 50. Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, trumpets habitually signal or refer to the completion of some great and mighty work that God Himself has brought about. Uh, In the book of Exodus, we read that it was trumpets that announced God descending from heaven to dwell with His people. Israel. In the book of Joshua, at Jericho, it was by a trumpet blast that God signaled that He had delivered the promised land into the hand of His people Israel. And the prophet Isaiah promised that it would be with a trumpet blast that God would bring His people Israel back from the political exile, from their captive, being captives amongst foreign lands, when He restored them. But in this passage, Paul is referring to that which is the last trumpet to be blown. The last trumpet will signal a completion of all of God's marvellous works, the establishment of God's kingdom in heaven and on earth. And this last trumpet blast will likewise signal the completion of God's transforming work in us as well. Our mortal flesh and blood... Paul says, will be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, he says, those who sleep in death at the moment will be raised immortal. Those who are still alive at Jesus' return, they also will be completely transformed as well. It's a transformation that's sketched out for us uh, at the end of last week's passage in verse 49, you might want to just glance back there, where Paul writes that, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that is, Adam, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man who is Jesus. We will bear the image of the resurrected Jesus himself, glorious, immortal, empowered, no longer captive to the frustrations of our frail flesh. It's worth remembering that Jesus' final heaving breath from hung up on the cross had left his life and ministry looking decidedly vain, pointless, and pretty pitiful, really. Completely without friend or family, Jesus breathed his last, and as he did so, it appeared absolutely nothing that he had put his hands to still remained standing. He had absolutely nothing to show for himself, not even a motley group of followers, as he breathed breathed his last. So perhaps it shouldn't take us completely by surprise when often our own attempts to honour God in the way in which we live and act in this world, when our own attempts to honour God with our lives fizzle out in what seems to be futility and frustration. That's a common Christian experience. Yet just as Jesus' glorious bodily resurrection put a startlingly different spin on the fate of His life and ministry, so at the last trumpet blast, God will announce that His work in us is gloriously complete, even though there might seem to be a million different loose ends in our lives, our Christian lives at the present. At the last trumpet blast, everything about us, that presently can feel as if it's on the verge of unravelling, will be revealed and unveiled as gloriously perfected and complete. All looming signs of despair, either with ourselves or with our vain endeavours, will be swallowed up for good, in victory and vindication. And that's what Paul goes on to affirm from verse 44 and following. Have a look there with me. Verse 54. Paul writes, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. These few verses are saturated in really quite vivid imagery, aren't they? the swallowing up of death, the sting of death being shown to be impotent and powerless. The imagery of something being swallowed up here is really quite visceral, isn't it? You know, when you swallow something, you consume it. Uh, This picture up on the screen is of a sinkhole, a massive sinkhole that appeared in Mexico, uh, I think it was around about Um, 2021 or so, it started off much smaller than that and eventually grew and grew to swallow up the house, you can see precariously perched on the edge, it completely was swallowed up and gone, and it even spread further and wider to encompass some of the neighbour's property as well. This idea of a big hole just swallowing up something which disappears forever, never to be seen or heard of again. And in the Scriptures, it's typically death or the grave that is said to swallow up everything that comes in contact with it. It's death and the grave that swallows up whole human hope and dreams that we hold dearest. Proverbs describes the grave as having a voracious appetite that swallows whole anyone who comes near it. But in this passage, the metaphor is dramatically reversed and it's death itself that is swallowed up by life, never to be seen from or heard from ever again. I uh, have a look at this verse from Isaiah, which is, I think it's where Paul gets this dramatic image of death being swallowed up. Uh, of the coming kingdom, of the coming renewed creation, Isaiah writes, On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples." <coughs> Excuse me the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. For both Isaiah here and for Paul, it is the Lord of life Himself who will consume and swallow up completely every tear, all disgrace and shame, And ultimately, even death itself. What the Lord Jesus swallows up in the victory of His resurrection, will ultimately sink from view, never to resurface or see the light of day again. Not a tear, not a moment of shame or disgrace, not even a rumour of death. Uh, Now, even though the final trumpet hasn't sounded yet, so to speak, there are still some aspects of death's power that have already been dealt with. Which explains the almost mocking tone with which Paul speaks about death in verse 55. Did you notice that? Have a glance again at verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God. If Paul envisages death almost as if it's something like a scorpion, one that seems to hold us firmly in the grasp of its pincers then Paul says here that sin is like death's stinger. Sin is like death's stinger, a weapon which death wields to permanently paralyze us, leaving us helpless victims ready to be swallowed up by the grave. I think that's what it's meaning here when it describes sin as the sting of death. Sin is that which allows death to keep its hold on us as death is the judgment for sin. But Jesus has stepped in and taken the hit of sin for us, bearing in Himself the penalty and the judgment of sin that God's law testifies we really are deserving of. And so, with the poison of sin dealt with by Jesus' death on the cross, death is now left with no weapon to wield against us, to keep us in its grip, to immobilize us and make us its victims. Death is now powerless over us. And this victory that we experience is is not the fruit of our own struggling or striving, but it's a gift from God's own hand. And Paul imagines that this victory over death will actually transform how we as Jesus' followers experience those aspects of Christian living that at, at present can seem most vain, most futile, most pointless to us. That's really how Paul wraps up this whole entire chapter in verse 58. Have a look there with me. Verse 58. Paul writes, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain, is not futile. Uh, We each know, don't we, what it's like to discover that we've sunk enormous emotion and effort and energy into some work or endeavour that's ultimately proven to be a vain and futile, pointless waste of time. Perhaps we've opened ourselves up to others in the desire for intimacy with them, only for that vulnerability and openness to go barely even acknowledged, perhaps even turned against us, Perhaps we've poured countless hours of time into careers, but instead of having that effort honoured, we have been moved sideways to make way for others, humiliatingly. Perhaps we've given years over to patiently caring for, for friends or family members, only for it to seem resentment rather than recognition is all that we've got left to show for ourselves, for our efforts, for our investment in those relationships. As the writer of Ecclesiastes recognized as we began together this morning, we can expend so much energy and effort in pursuits which ultimately turn out to be fruitless, vain or futile. And isn't it so disheartening and despairing when that's the case? It can sap us of all energy and will. But friends, there's one species of work, one kind of work that Paul says we need never fear, might turn out to be futile or a waste of time. Uh, When Paul speaks about the work of the Lord in this final verse, I don't think that he's only thinking about that effort that we dedicate to this ministry or that ministry or to evangelistic efforts. I don't think he's only speaking about organised ministry work here that the resurrection protects from being vain and futile. I think he's also speaking about any effort that we expend to bring either our own personal lives or the life of church here together more into alignment with what God himself loves and commands. Let me finish with a couple of examples. Whenever we have genuinely loved others, for Jesus' sake, even at an inexplicable cost to ourselves, that, Paul assures us, won't prove to have been in vain. Whenever we've pursued mercy rather than vengeance in our relationship with other people, whenever we've pursued peace with those that we live and work alongside, that effort certainly won't prove to have been a vain waste of time, Paul says, even though it might leave us feeling hopelessly short-changed in the short term whenever we pursue pure hearts, that delight in what God loves, Paul guarantees that such labour in the Lord won't have been in vain, will not ultimately leave us ashamed or wrong-footed. Whenever we have stood firmly, immovable in our faith, trusting God's promises to us, we can be assured, Paul says, that God will not allow the ground to be swallowed up from underneath us, though it might often feel as if that's exactly what's happening to us. Jesus' resurrection offers us a concrete and historical and ever-living guarantee that staking our lives, even on the impossible promises of God, will pay off, that death won't be left at liberty to make fools out of us for having placed our hope in Christ. And the resurrection that He has promised to share with us. It's the resurrection that is the single greatest sign and guarantee that entrusting ourselves to Jesus won't leave us at a loss, won't leave us red-faced, won't leave us looking like fools for having entrusted everything to Him. Let's pray that He might strengthen us to take that hope of the resurrection, and to love and serve one another in Him, uh, with the days that He has given us. Let's pray. Dearest Father, Father, <clears throat> so many of our endeavours come to unexpected ends, and even those ones that seem to have been successful at the end of our lives might unravel once we are gone from the earth. Father, we are sometimes overwhelmed and disheartened. We sometimes despair that our ability, our flesh and blood ability to impact this world, to shape it, to change it, to leave anything lasting or meaningful can be so frail, can disappear so quickly and easily. Father, we thank you that in the midst of all the uncertainties of this life, you give us one sure and certain hope that in Jesus' resurrection, death has been unwound, that everything we do in service of You and in order to honour and love You will be shown to have been of eternal worth when we ourselves are raised from the dead, to rejoice together and praise You for Your faithfulness to us. Father, we ask that this day and this week You would strengthen our hearts with this encouragement, that together we might stand firm as we await that last trumpet blast, when we again will be raised to life with one another and with all those who have departed this life in the faith before us. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Uh, Friends, we're going to sing together, uh, responding in praise to God for His kindness to us. Uh, We'll then spend some time in prayer as well. Uh, And if you'd like to send through any questions, uh, you're more than welcome to do that over the next little while.